Would you like to know more about how pharma manufacturing works? Every month, we bring you an insider conversation with our experts here at Lonza, with our partners and leaders in the industry. Hi, my name is Martina Hestericeva, and this is A View On, a podcast brought to you by Lonza. Harnessing the power of our immune system has revolutionized the way we address certain conditions and offer treatment options for patients. One well-known example is to use CAR T-cells to target cancer. But researchers are also beginning to see the potential for regenerative medicine and for treating genetic disorders and inflammation. Engaging the immune system for therapy is tricky, for it can also trigger an unwanted response, leading to serious adverse side effects. The drug itself, or the metabolites it generates, can become toxic to certain tissues. Another undesired outcome could be that our body develops anti-drug antibodies against these protein-based therapies, rendering the treatment inefficient or even harmful. Predicting whether or not the biotherapeutic will trigger these unwelcome responses is a major challenge in developing immunotherapies. With about half of the novel drugs failing clinical trials due to unanticipated toxicity. You don't want your patients to raise this immune response to the drugs um, that are being used to treat them. So it really is essential that drug developers do assess the immunogenicity risk. Not only can it impact the functionality of the drug, but it can also be a very significant safety risk for the patient. That's Yvette Stolwood, who is the head of early development services at Lonza. Her team helps biotech and pharma companies to de-risk their drug development pathway and maximize their biotherapeutics chances of success. This includes selecting and developing the most optimal drug candidates. One of the novel ways they test early for toxicity is by using in vitro assays of human models instead of animal testing, which is both more efficient and has the advantage of reducing animal testing. Her team comes in during the late discovery stage of the drug development process. So after the initial phase of identifying or designing a therapeutic and assessing the mode of action, but before the drug goes to trial. They support small and emerging companies as well as large biopharma, but can also support academic groups and venture capital companies. Yvette has joined us today to discuss the importance of early immunosafety assessment to the industry and patients. Hi, Yvette. Welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. What could you tell us and our listeners about the early development services at Lonza? Okay, so the Early Development Services Group, or, or EDS for short, uh, we're based in Cambridge in the UK, and we've been part of Lonza for um, over 10 years now. Our focus is on right first time. What we do is we enable our clients to ensure they've de-risked their lead products as much as possible before they take the next steps on the road to development. We work with clients from all over the world, from virtual companies, small biotechs, through to large biotech and pharma. And the majority of the clients we work with, they're in the late stage discovery or early stage of drug development, and we support them with de-risking their programs. So you mentioned that sometimes you support companies at the very beginning, some of them are virtual, and you can help them guide them through the later development stages. Where does your team come into play exactly? 
So our clients will often come to us having identified their lead candidates based on functionality and efficacy. Whilst these are obviously very important criteria, there is a lot more that can be done to ensure the lowest risk candidate is selected. You don't really want to be in the position where you've started um, your cell line development work and you've progressed into manufacturing, and then you discover that you have a high risk product, particularly if it's, if it's a risk that could have been addressed or mitigated at an early time point. And what you often mention is something called de-risking of a candidate. What does this really mean? Yes, de-risking is really just where we want to understand as much about the product. So there are things such as stability, immunogenicity, things which can really impact the safety and stability of the product and, of course, the patient. So de-risking is many things, but for us, immunogenicity is a key part of de-risking. Could you explain what exactly is this immunogenicity and uh, why is it important to address it in the first place? Yeah, certainly. So immunogenicity or the definition of immunogenicity is the ability of a foreign substance such as an antigen to provoke an immune response in the body. So it can be wanted or unwanted. We all know with vaccines, hot topic obviously at the moment, um, we need them to be immunogenic and stimulate the immune response. That's how they work. However, the opposite is usually true for a biologic drug. You don't want your patients to raise this immune response to the drugs um, that are being used to treat them. So it really is essential that drug developers do assess the immunogenicity risk. Not only can it impact the functionality of the drug, but it can also be a very significant safety risk for the patient. So if we are to compare it to a vaccine or if a bacteria or a virus enters our body and it has this immunogenic property, If this happens to a drug that we want to have in our body and we need it to treat a certain disease, what can happen to our body or to the drug when our bodies start producing these anti-drug antibodies? Yeah, so when we raise this unwanted immune response to a therapeutic antigen, um, this leads, as you say, to the reduction of, of anti-drug antibodies or known as an ADA response. So in this instance, the antibodies are generated by the patient and they're essentially doing their job by removing and trying to, to clear the drug product from the patient. They, they see it as foreign, so they're trying to get rid of it. By doing so, um, this can impact and alter the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of the product. Uh, this could cause the drug not to reach its target or perhaps to have too much of it accumulate somewhere in the body where it shouldn't. So this can potentially have very adverse effects on the patient. In addition, the ADA response can also impact the efficacy of the drug, maybe stop it working altogether, or certainly limit the activity of the drug. Um, and it could also potentially cause cross-reactivity um, with endogenous proteins um, within the patient. So it's not only that it could decrease the efficacy, but it could even be dangerous to the patient. It oh, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It can be dangerous um, to the patient, yes. I wonder what part of the drug formulation can be responsible for this? Is this always the protein, as we are now talking about biologics, or could it be also the supporting molecules that are added to the formulation? I'm thinking about adjuvants or anything like this in vaccines, for instance. Yes, yeah, so it is primarily the, the protein or the API, um, but certainly product impurities or contaminants Um, or potentially some formulation excipients, um, what you mentioned there, could, can potentially also influence the, the immunotoxicity and immunosafety of the product. And now maybe a dumb question, but uh, we've been talking about assessing the immunogenicity for biologics. Can this be applied also to small molecules? Yeah. So really small, small organic molecules, I don't know, even aspirin. Yeah, absolutely. You know, immunogenicity, it's any kind of, of drug, essentially. 
uh, it's biologics, it's small molecules, uh, CAR T therapies, um, you know, bioconjugates, really any, any kind of, 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 of drug product um, has potential immunogenic risk. Um, but in general, could you tell us why is it so challenging to assess immunosafety in general? And uh, what are the typical methods that you use? Yeah, so I guess historically, a lot of the, the immunosafety and immunogenicity testing would have been performed using animal models. Uh, and, and some of it still is, but these models could be informative, um, but they certainly do have limitations, primarily because the immune response of an animal is different to that of a human. So the, a human molecule um, going into to, to animals is likely to be immunogenic. Um, and it may have different binding characteristics in animals compared to humans. Um, so the data generated from an animal study could be very conflicting with um, what would actually happen within a patient. Mm-hmm. So if the animal tests are not preferred, I wonder why have they been used for so long? Why haven't we pushed for implementing human models earlier? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, obviously animal models, as I say, historically used, but some of the these newer assays, I mean, new use of, of human models are, are relatively new to the market. Um, you know, perhaps, you know, the last five to 10 years or so is, is when they really come to the fore. Yeah, it's all about um, educating and perhaps even reassuring developers that these, these assays where we're using perhaps primary human immune cells, they are acceptable to the regulatory authorities and they can be used in place of some of the the in vivo models that would have been used in the past. What are the current tools that are available? You mentioned some of the primary immune cells can be used for yeah. testing. Is there is there anything else? I wonder, so if you have a drug that targets specific tissues, do you test for immunogenicity on these specific tissues or, or do you just test the immune cells? Yeah, so there are different things we can do depending on if we're looking kind of at immunogenic risk or immunotoxicity. Within EDS, we perform actually both in silico and in vitro um, assays looking at immunosafety and immunotoxicity. In silico is our starting point. We use those for looking at immunogenicity risk. And the in silico tools, they're perfect for screening a large number of candidates. Remember, I said we could be in the tens or hundreds or even thousands of candidates. So the in silico tools, they're quick. We can rapidly identify the higher risk candidates from a lower risk. But they only so, tell us so much, which is where we get involved with it, then the in vitro assays. This helps us to get a, a bigger picture um, of the immunosafety um, by assessing the product itself. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned earlier, it's not just about the protein um, component of the product. By screening the product, we can look at the impact, perhaps, of artifacts of production and, and product impurities, which can influence the immunosafety uh, and, indeed, the mode of action of the product. So, as you mentioned, yes, we do this using primary immune cells that we've isolated from the blood, we have the advantage of, of testing the products in a wide range of donors which have different genotypic backgrounds, so different immune types. We all have different immune types. So we, we can screen usually kind of upwards of, say, 30 to 50 donors with different immune profiles, uh, which gives us a, a good reflection of the patient population. So some of the other things we can do, we're looking at um, perhaps more of the immunotoxicity side of things. We're looking for off-target toxicity um, what we do is actually co-culture our primary immune cells that we've taken from human donors. Mm-hmm. Co-culture those with human primary cells, again, which have been taken from tissues such as the, the lung, liver, or brain, and kidney. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to study and understand the impact, you know, if the, the drug product reached those tissues, what would it do? Would it have an immunotoxic effect on those tissues? So if these human models came to the market in the 
past, I don't know, five to 10 years, you said. Yeah. Does this mean that you are now also retesting existing drugs that were developed before that area? Or is this applied only for the newcomers to the market? It's primarily only new products. I mean, we do a lot of work using existing products to, to understand the immunogenicity risk linked to them. You know, if we're performing an assay, we'll often use um, some of these products as a benchmark so we can see how a new product compares um, and performs um, compared to, to products which are on the clinic. I'm surprised that it's also not retested back because some probably existing drugs could be caught this way as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there are certainly clinical products which in the clinic which are immunogenic mm-hmm. and our assays show that and it's comparable with with what the clinic says but sometimes it depends on what the product is being used for um sometimes there is it's almost an acceptable level of immunogenicity risk so you have to, to offset almost the immunogenicity risk of the product with the disease the patient is being treated for so is this comparable to for instance when you have a cancer treatment that is administered at the very late stages sometimes the ph can be kind of harmful to the patient but the risk is worth it right because otherwise nothing else would have worked yeah absolutely in cases like that you know if a product does have a higher level of immunogenic risk that risk profile can probably be more tolerated as you say if it's a, a treatment for the end of life care Yeah, there's probably a high level of, of toleration for a, a high risk immunogenic product. Obviously, if you were if you were working, if you had a product that was going to be used and dosed on a very routine base, you know, for every week, every month for you know five, ten years or so, obviously you need that product to be as low risk as possible for immunogenicity. So again, a curiosity-driven question. I wonder whether maybe in the future would it be possible to create personalized testing? for each drug that could be administered or would be a potential drug candidate for that patient, could you run personalized immunogenicity testing for them? It would be quite possible, I mean, perhaps not on the scale of hundreds and thousands of patients, but the, the more personalized medicine, you could certainly withdraw some blood from the patients, prepare the immune cells, and then test the product in the patient's cells before you're delivering it to the patient. So absolutely, yeah. That's fascinating. I mean, if we look at the trends in the market, personalized medicine seems to be the future. Maybe already in the next 20 years, it would be interesting to see how this co-developed with our early development services then. Cool. Yes, definitely. (laughs) So I've been reading about this and it seems like many drug candidates that go through clinical trials uh, and fail the clinical trials, which seems to be quite a large proportion, almost half of the candidates fail clinical trials. It seems to be caused by the fact that they turn out to be toxic to to the human body. So I wonder, would it make sense maybe from the regulatory bodies to push for this testing very, very early on? Yeah, absolutely. As early as possible. These assays, you know, the immunotoxicity, the immunosafety really should be used prior to selecting the final lead candidate. I mean, bear in mind, the timelines for this work are relatively short. Um, a couple of weeks for some of the in silico screening, two to three months for the in vitro. So it, it doesn't add a significant burden of time. But remember that this investment in time early can save a lot of wasted and lost time and, of course, resource and funding. So certainly the current situation with the regulatory authorities is that they are encouraging developers um, to show that they have an immunosafety or immunogenicity risk strategy in place And really, the earlier the better. We certainly had clients in the past who have reached the stage 
where the product has gone into trials, into phase one, and they are then seeing significant immunogenic risks and they are going right oh. back oh, to the yeah. start. I see. Seems like there's bright future for these types of tests ahead of us, huh? Uh, we certainly hope so, <laughs> yeah. Um, but ultimately, yeah, you know, I think we remember the personal but group who benefit in all of this are the patients. Um, you know, if they are have the potential to to get the drugs that they may not otherwise have received, um, but importantly, a, a low risk um, and, and stable and safe drug. That's the important thing here. And to close this all off, uh, what is the future of early development services at Lonza? Could you tell our listeners anything that's going behind the scenes? Yeah, so we're continuing to grow and support more clients and, and ultimately more patients. Um, so we're currently really busy supporting a, a number of clients with our immunosafety assessments to support their IND filings. So it's really exciting for us to see how close to patients some of the products we work with are. In fact, we actually heard recently from a, a previous client that a, a product we supported with a range of our de-risking services, which included some of our other services such as antibody humanization and protein reduction, it's just been delivered to the first patient as part of a phase one trial. Oh, wow. That's really exciting news for us. We absolutely, yeah, we absolutely love hearing about the later stages of development of products that we helped to de-risk. And it really does help the, the hardworking EDS team here um, when they can see how the work they perform supports both our clients and our patients. It really helps us feel very proud um, in our work and what we do. Thank you for your time. This was really an informative discussion and I hope that our listeners enjoyed the conversation as well. And thanks for your time and coming to the podcast. Pleasure, Martina. Thank you. And that's our last show of a view on for 2021. We will be back in January 2022 with brand new and exciting science and technology stories. Thanks for tuning in over the past 12 months. As you wait for our next episode, make sure that you subscribe and give us a rating. Believe me, it makes a huge difference. You don't miss a single episode and allow more people to discover our podcast. For more information about the show and additional reading materials, visit lonza.com forward slash a dash view dash on. Thanks for listening and bye for now.